0: In today's Gospel reading, Jesus has a conversation with a group of Sadducees. This seems fairly ordinary, but it's actually very unusual. In the Gospels, Jesus spends lots of time arguing with Pharisees, another group of first-century Jews, but he almost never interacts with Sadducees. There are two main reasons for that. The first is that the Sadducees were the religious elites of the day who ran the temple in Jerusalem. In the world of first century Judaism, they were the beltway insiders. And because Jesus spent most of his life out in the countryside, they never interacted until Jesus went to Jerusalem at the end of his life. The second reason that Sadducees don't play a big role in the Gospels is that the temple, their center of their religious life, is destroyed in the year 70. And without the temple, the Sadducees became largely irrelevant. You notice that Luke, in today's gospel writing after the temple was destroyed, has to explain to his readers who Sadducees were, because they don't know, there's none around anymore. So the Sadducees might seem like a weird group for Luke to be writing about, because no one really knows any Sadducees in his church, but they were a useful foil in one important way. They didn't believe in resurrection. The Sadducees held that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, were fully authoritative. And since they never mentioned resurrection, they thought, well, there must not be a resurrection. On the other hand, St. Luke and his community, of course, did believe in resurrection, which is why when Luke wants to make a point about what the resurrection is, the Sadducees are the logical group to invoke. So here's the question the Sadducees asked Jesus in today's gospel reading. If a woman is married to seven different men during her lifetime, and she's passed from brother to brother after they die, that's the custom of the time, then which brother will be her husband after the resurrection? Number one, number seven, none of the above, all of the above, two and five, who's it going to be? If this question seems ridiculous to you, it also seems ridiculous to Jesus. And Jesus really doesn't give them a straightforward answer. Instead, Jesus says you have to get your terms right when you're talking about the resurrection. Because it turns out, the resurrection that the Sadducees don't believe in is very different than the one that St. Luke does believe in. When the Sadducees imagine resurrection, They think of it as the best things in life repeated over and over and over again. So if you like chocolate, Seinfeld, and estate sales, well, you're in luck, because that's exactly what the resurrection is like. Luke's Jesus, on the other hand, thinks of resurrection as something completely new and different. Those who live in the resurrection, Jesus says, don't marry. They're like angels. They don't die anymore. So resurrection is not just more of the same. When the Sadducees talk about resurrection, they're just talking about resuscitation. They're not thinking about change. But Jesus says, when you think about resurrection, think about transformation. If there is a place where we need to be open to transformation, it is stewardship. I worked on that transition for so long, and there was no way to make it smoother than that. If we are a resurrection people, if we're a transformation people, then hopefully the way we talk about stewardship should change too. Too often our thinking about stewardship is driven by guilt, it's narrowly focused on money, and it's seen as a, nece- as a necessary evil. And we have wrong-headed ideas about stewardship because we have a backwards view of what church is. So let me try to show you what I mean by this. If someone asked you to draw a diagram of how the church was organized, then what would you draw? There's a good chance, maybe you wouldn't, but some people would draw a pyramid. They'd say we have lay people here on the bottom. We have garden variety clergy above them, that's me. We have bishops above the clergy, that's Bishop Tracy. And we have the presiding bishop, that's Bishop Elizabeth up top. And as you go up there are fewer people, but they have more power and influence and somehow they represent what the Church is better than the people below. That's a very backwards way to think about who we are as Church. In fact, you can take that model, that pyramid, and just flip it upside down. Who are the people who make up the heart of the Church? It's you. It's not me. It's not the bishop. It's certainly not the presiding bishop, it's you. And once you get that way of thinking about church in your head, you can start to think about stewardship in a way that's actually helpful. To start with, this new perspective changes how we think about money. If you are the church, then when you give money to the church, you're not really giving money away because you are the people who decide how that money gets used. You serve on the church council who makes those financial decisions. You have a vote to elect people to be on that body. That new perspective, this is the more important one, changes how we think about service. If you are the church, it means you can't volunteer at church because the church is you. So saying you volunteer at church is like saying you volunteer to be your child's parent. It's not really volunteering if it's yours. Now hopefully you hear that as an empowering message. Because it means that you can make the church whatever you want it to be. Do you want the church to be more welcoming to newcomers? Introduce yourself to people you don't know. Do you want the church to be more involved in the community? Then go to events we organize in the community. Do you want the church to do a better job of caring for the sick? and give someone a call or write them a card if you know they're sick. The church will be exactly as welcoming, engaged, caring, involved, and fun as you are. Because there's no church besides you. You have the power. Now, So often when we think about stewardship, we start not from a position of how much power we have, but from a posture of scarcity. You don't have enough. You don't have enough money. We don't have enough staff, we don't have enough people. So let me ask you another question. This question came up at our Mission mission, Vision Welcome conversation a couple weeks ago. Imagine that as a church, as a congregation, we had an unlimited supply of money. Imagine that as a congregation, you had the perfect staff, you had the perfect building, all the resources you could ever want. What would you do? And he was quiet for a bit. Even Peter Salu was quiet. That doesn't happen often. And then after a while, people started chiming in ideas. I'd have CPR trainings in the fellowship hall. I'd have an off-site retreat where people could get to know each other outside of church. I'd have a pickup choir where people could rehearse a song right before worship. I'd run food collections at the YMCA. Now, were all of those good ideas? No, some were good, some were enthusiastic, but that's really not the point. The point for us is to see that transformation is possible. Transformation means you don't have to start from this mindset of scarcity and work backwards. So often we think we have a financial deficit, when the real problem is we have a deficit of imagination. Now maybe you noticed that list of things that people said they would do if they had an unlimited amount of money. Most of those things don't even cost any money. You could do them tomorrow. Once you reframe stewardship around the power that you have, suddenly we're thinking about possibilities instead of limitations. Now, I said this to our executive committee and to our council, and I'll say it again to you today. Advent has problems we have to solve. Every church has problems it has to solve. But your problem, is not closing a budget deficit of tens of thousands of dollars. Your problem is not filling multiple staff vacancies at once. Your problem is not, thank God, dealing with a lawsuit. We have a fun problem to solve. Your problem, our problem, is how to be a church that's useful to, transparent to, and in the service of its community. So think about the people who are, say, It's what, like nine, 10 o'clock I'm long. Think about the people who are not in church this morning at 10 o'clock. They're out at brunch, they're at the Y, they're wherever. What are the things that keep them up at night? What's the story they built to understand their place in the world? What's the thing they most want to be known for? See, those are all theological questions. We live in a culture that's post-Christian. We live in a society that's post-church. But we don't live in a world that's post-gospel. See our community needs people like you, and we need people like them. Because people are saying, I want to learn about God, but I don't want to have to be an idiot to do it. I want to know about Jesus, but I don't want to have to be a bigot. I want to be part of something bigger than myself, but not if it means just hating on everyone else. Well, we got good news for you, because that's what we're all about. So the question for us is how can we take our message and mission into the world in a way that shapes people's lives around the compassion of God? And here's the more important one. How can we let the needs and hungers of our community shape the things that we spend our time and our resources on? That's the question. That's the problem. That's the fun part. So when you think about stewardship, don't think about money. Don't think about time and talents. Don't think about pledging. Think about the kind of church that you would be if you could be any kind of church you wanted to be, because you can. Think about witness. Think about transformation. And think about resurrection. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.